chapter 2. As we're working our way through the book of 1 Peter, as we're going through the Bible, we started last week in the beginning of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, and we saw last week how Peter was emphasizing to us how special we are. And he, he revolves around the idea that we were at one time rejected. And we talked about how this world has a tendency to teach us rejection and what that feels like. And, but he said Jesus was rejected as well, and he understands that. And yet, he says, following that rejection, there's also the concept of precious and valuable. That although we may be rejected by others, yet our Lord looks on us and sees us as someone special. And the passage that we looked at last week ended with verses 9 and 10, where Peter says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So we see that he says you were chosen, you're special, you belong to God, you are priests and royalty and all of those things. But it kind of begs the question, so, so what? And why? What's all this about? Did God just want to come and make us feel really special? And then that's the end of it? Um, was it so that we could become kind of prideful in how good we are compared to how we used to be? To brag about the, you know, that, yeah, I used to be just like you, but now, look at me. God's chosen special person. Actually, no. God has a reason for blessing us the way he has, and he hints at it in verse 9, and then he's going to develop it later this morning. But after he says his own special people, he says why? In order that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. See, the reason why God has blessed us and, and drawn out from us that special quality that he sees, that preciousness for us, it doesn't just end there. It actually gets better than that because he has given us the opportunity to proclaim to others that they too can be involved in the blessing that they get to participate, that he is inviting them, that God isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so Peter is saying, he sets the stage by saying, you guys are really special, and you really matter to God. And it doesn't matter that anyone else rejects you. God sees you with these qualities and this value that's just insurmountable to anyone who would try to assail that However, he says, the best part is that he gives you the opportunity to declare, to proclaim to others and announce that they too can have their lives go from darkness into light, go from worthlessness and rejection into value. And it's so important for us to understand that's what we are here for. See, we, get, we were rejected and then were accepted by God 
And if we were done at that point, we'd just go to heaven where we can enjoy him forever. But he left us here because there are still so many people he loves who don't yet understand the value that he places in them. And so he's left us here in order to declare that. And actually, it's God's heart and his desire that we would influence others, that we would be people of influence who actually have a transforming effect on the lives of people we come in contact with. And so now he's going to talk to us about how that can happen. Obviously, there's something wrong because there's a huge number of people in this world who call themselves Christians. And there are no doubt many of those who sincerely have given their lives to Jesus Christ. And yet, we seem to have a decreasing impact on society as a whole, on the world around us. If we are here in order to affect people and see them drawn to Jesus Christ, then it begs the question, how come it's not working so well? Why don't we have the kind of influence on people around us that God designed us to have? And Peter's just going to get right into that here as we look, beginning with verse 11. Now he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, that means as people who are away from home, our home is in heaven with him, And we are here on this planet, as the old Larry Norman song said, we're only visiting this planet. This isn't our home. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. So he says, I'm talking to you as those who don't really live here. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe Glorify God in the day of visitation. See, what he's saying is there are some things that you need to do in order for those who don't believe. He's speaking primarily to Jewish Christians, and so he uses the term Gentile that they would always use for those guys out there. And he says, you're called to have an impact on them. And so where you need to start in verse 11 is to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now that word abstain means literally it's to hold yourself off. Hold yourself back, limit yourself, reel it in. And what he calls fleshly lusts are things that come from your body, but that word for lust is the word epithumia in the Greek. And thumia was passionate. It was a word that meant to breathe hard. And epi, it means upon. And so the idea of epithumia isn't just traditional lust as we use the word, but it's the idea of living your life according to the passions of your flesh. Just if you feel it, you do it. Sometimes this word is translated as anger in different cases, other times as lust. But what he is saying here is, I understand that things happen in your life that cause you to want to react in a certain way, whether it's in you know, temptations of different types or whether it's just frustration with life. But he says, because you have a responsibility to have an impact on others, people who don't know God, you need to reel it in. You need to pull that back. He says, that's not, you can't just 
react. You can't afford to just be someone who, if something makes you mad, you blow your top. If something you want it, you take it. If you justify whatever you do and you're reacting constantly according to, just like everyone else does, everyone else in the world does, he says you're not supposed to be like that because, as he says, your, your conduct is supposed to be different. That kind of conduct is what makes war against your soul. That word war is the word that we transliterate into the word strategize. It's the word strategeo. The idea is there's a plot that is working against your soul. Your soul, your psyche, your suke in the Greek. It's the idea of who you are, the immaterial part of you. And he's saying that those fleshly reactions will destroy your soul. They will destroy who you are. They will take, and, and you know, you often will do things and go, I, I feel like making an excuse for myself because that's not really me. I'm not the type of person who would want to do that, but something happened, the strategy worked, and now I have just besmirched my example to others, and I'm destroying who I am. Often people, as they get older, lose sight of even who am I at all. We go into these identity crises because I, I feel so far away from who I really am at the source. And he says that's exactly what the flesh does is it robs you of your soul. It destroys who you are at the depths of your being. And he goes, don't do that because, as he says, your conduct needs to be honorable among the Gentiles. The word honorable, well, let me explain. There are a couple of Greek words that are used back and forth in this passage. And they're simple words, but it helps you understand the literary quality of it a little bit if you see this. There's a word in Greek called kalos, um, K-A-L-O-S, if it was in English. And the word kalos means attractive. It means something that people are drawn to, something that's nice, it's aesthetically wonderful. And then there's the word kakos in the Greek, K-A-K-O-S, and it kind of stands in opposition to kalos, which is attractiveness or beauty, and kakos means, well, it's often translated evil, but it's a word that means ugly. It means worthless. It's just junk. It's garbage. And so what's at play here in this verse is are you going to be kalos or are you going to be kakos? Do you want to be someone who attracts others or do you want to be someone who repels others? Some people can brighten up a room just by entering. Some people can brighten up a room just by leaving. And so he's going, that's kalos, kakos, okay? And you can nudge your spouse depending on which one they are. But, okay, so here's what he says. Having your conduct callous, the way that you live, the word here is honorable, but it's attractive. And there's nothing more attractive than someone who doesn't just spew out whatever comes into their mind. Someone who doesn't just react in a bad way to whatever happens. So he says, make your conduct callous, attractive among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers... That's the word um, kakos put together with the word for do, poyo. So he says, 
They are saying that you are worthless. They are saying that you are ugly. They reject you and they say you're kakos. But make your conduct, the way you live, be kalos. Attractive despite the allegations of ugliness. And he says, that they may by your good works, that's the word for work, ergo, and then the, the word kalos in front of it. So he says, the way you live your life is that the way you conduct your daily life, despite the fact that they're saying ugly things about you, you are living in a kalos way. You are living in that attractive work that, that he's talking about. By your kalos works, which they observe, and the word therefore observe means not just to see it, but it means they look at it, it gets their attention. It's the word to look at optimi, which we get optometrist from, and then it's the, a P in front of it, which is a pawn. And so the idea of the word is that they are intensely staring at you. They do a double take. They see how you react, and they look, and they go, wow, I've never seen anyone react that way. That's attractive. That's something that's nice. And he says, so that when they observe the way you live, they would glorify God, praise him, the, the word there is the word, same word that we get doxology from. That would, they would just praise God in the day of visitation. That word for visitation is the same word that is used for bishops. It's episcope. We get episcopalians from that word. It means to oversee or to inspect. And what he's saying is a day of inspection is coming. And our desire is to see people that now don't know Christ, that when they look at us, something happens, and someday they will be there glorifying God when it's inspection day, when the one who oversees everything, and he is, in the final verse of this chapter, called the overseer, the episkopos. When that day happens, the idea is to draw them into a place where their, your influence on them has transformed their lives, and they can be praising God too, just like us. And so that's kind of a heavy thing, as he says, they're going to think that you're kakos, but you are to live in a kalos way. You are to live in a way that's attractive, and that trumps kakos any day of the week. To respond attractively makes a huge difference in the lives of others because they just aren't used to seeing people do that. They are used to seeing people responding in an ugly way to ugliness. There's plenty of ugliness out there, but he's saying there ought to be a difference in the way that you appear, in the way that you respond. Now, he says, therefore, because of that, here is how you do that. Here's how you can live your life in, a, in an influential way. Here's how you'll make a difference for others. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. That's the word kakos and do again. And for the praise of those who do good. Now, so he says, here's where you start. You need to submit yourselves. 
to man-made ordinances. The word submit is a word that's used quite a bit in the Bible, and, and it's, it's a word, uh, hupo, which is under, and tasso, which means to be arranged. So arrange yourself under. The word doesn't just mean, okay, you do everything someone tells you to do, um, but what it means is people are the way they are. And in this case, the ordinances, that's a word that means the way things are set up, the way they've been designed. And then later he talks about the rulers and people like that. But he says, if you want to be influential, then you had better accept the way things are set up. And you adapt yourself to the systems in which you find yourself rather than to constantly fight against whatever is going and thus show yourself to be no better than everyone else who is fighting. So he says, therefore, adjust yourselves to everything that people have set up, but you don't do it for their sake, you do it for the Lord's sake. And that means if it's the king, and that means if it's governors, senators, the mayor, the head of your homeowners association, it's any organization, the leader of the little league. As to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, realize they have a job and they're looking for ugliness and for the praise of those who do good. Now, this becomes difficult immediately for us because often we are told, and there's some truth to this, hey, wait, as Christians, aren't we to be countercultural? Aren't we to come and show an alternative? Aren't we to fight against the way that things are? Well, the Bible clearly demonstrates in the New Testament that the way we win this battle is not by banging heads with what's already set up. And experience will tell us how horrible that works. And there are so many people who believe that as Christians we need to organize and take control of the system and we need to get people elected and we need to do all this kind of stuff, well, that makes us just like everyone else who wants power, frankly. And power, as Lord Acton said, corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and that is not the way that God has chosen to win the battle that will ultimately attract people to Him. God could care less who is powerful. He is not impressed with whoever is in a position of authority. He doesn't care about political parties. He doesn't care about, he doesn't freak out when it's like, oh, but this bill is passing over. He's not worried about that. Now, we are to be good citizens, and there is a place where sometimes we need to speak up when things affect that which we believe from our hearts. And so I'm not, I'm not completely discounting that, but what Peter is saying and Paul kind of does the same thing over in Romans 13. He's saying, you have a much more important agenda than just polishing the brass on a sinking ship or rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. This thing is going down. Your job is to see how many people you can attract to the lifeboat. How many people can you bring to Jesus Christ? And if that happens in a radical way, it'll also affect society. But society is what it is. And so he says, you adapt yourself to society without moral compromise, but just realizing that is what it is. What's the best way that I can do what I'm called to do? What's the best way I can get accomplished what God has 
called me to, and what's the best way I can deal with authority in a way that will actually be attractive? Everyone who is in any kind of a position of authority is used to people yelling at them, being mad at them, arguing with them. But you know what? When you respond differently, and when you just take a practical adaptation, and he's going to go into this a little more, that is an amazingly attractive quality. And it's something that unfortunately is too rare. But he is just saying, hey, wait, don't, you know, don't get caught up in that kind of a thing. Because to, to them, you will begin to look ugly. You'll begin to look cacos. And they're out there trying to squash cacos. And, and they'll destroy you and your capacity to be used by God. And so he says, and if you don't like that, he says, tough in verse 15, this is the will of God. That word will means this is the choice of God. God could have done it any way he wanted to. He chose to do it this way. And that's why the scriptures even talk about the fact that, you know, that everyone who is in a position of authority is there because God put them there. God chose that. And so he says, this is God's choice, that by doing good, you may muzzle, literally, put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now we go, okay, finally. He's telling it like it is. They're ignorant. They're foolish. We need to muzzle them. <laughs> yeah, of course we do. We'd love to muzzle everyone who is spouting foolishness, no doubt about it. But don't miss the context and don't redefine the words either. The word for ignorant here is the word that we transliterate as agnostic. It's just the word gnosis, which means to know and by experience, and the word a, which means not. So he's saying, these people who are doing wrong, who are doing evil, they don't know. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can't get upset with people who don't know any better. You can't get upset with people who react to something based on what they know. Yeah, they don't know the big picture. So how are we to respond to people who don't know? I don't expect our senators to, to make decisions that reflect what I know as a Christian because most of them don't know. So I'm not mad at them about that. What I want is to figure out how can we help them to know what is the best way that we can influence them. And certainly working with them is demonstrably more effective than working against them. But not only are they ignorant, they don't know, but he also calls them foolish men. And that's a real pejorative term that we would use, ignorant and foolish. But it doesn't necessarily have that connotation. Ignorant just means you don't know. And the word here for foolish is the word aphron. It's, from, the, the frame in Greek was your midsection. It was like your gut. And they believed that your feelings and your um, sensitivity came from your gut. You can understand where people would get that idea. So this is just people who don't have the sensitivity. They just aren't sensitive to the things that you might be sensitive to. So they're operating in a deficient way, and, and that's true. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you can't have the kind of sensitivity that you get when you come into a relationship with him. But so often as Christians, we become the ones who are ignorant, 
because we don't know enough to even be able to interact with them. And, and then we also become really insensitive to who they are and what they're going through. Been a Christian for a while, I completely forget what it was like to be in that state. But from God, we see such a different idea that he came. Jesus came and was completely sensitive to people who the religious people had discarded a long time ago. And he entered into their world and he communicated with them on a level that they were able to understand. And so here, Peter is just saying, hey, understand this. God wants you to have an effect on others and realize they don't know and they don't feel. And so as a result, you have to be sensitive to that. And again, as he went back earlier, remember, it's the whole idea of just responding in passion. Responding in a natural way will only make you like everyone else. If someone is mean to me and I am mad at them, I'm just like them. That doesn't get anyone's attention. But when people see someone who doesn't do that, it really confuses them. It really kind of shakes them up, and they have to stop and take notice. Now he says, as free, he goes, Don't, you're not a slave to these people, but not using your freedom, your liberty, as a cloak for, and the word there for vice is the word kakia, which is another form of kakos. So he says, don't use the fact that you are free, don't use your spiel as a way to conceal your ugliness. Don't represent God to non-believers in a way that your presentation in itself is ugly. It's unattractive. No, if it's from him, it's attractive. Now, they'll be threatened by that and they'll call it unattractive, but he said, be careful because you can present the truth in a way that's really ugly and you're just claiming that you are righteously indignant. I'm mad at them because God's mad at them. Be careful. Moses did that when he struck the rock the second time and he didn't get to go into the promised land because of it because God said, you misrepresented me. I wasn't angry with the people. I wasn't wanting to strike them. I was wanting to give them water. I wanted to bless them. And so Peter is just going, look, you don't have to do this, but you get to do it and recognize that this kind of an influence, this kind of a response that doesn't act ugly, it comes because you are a bondservant of God. You're not working for those people. You're working for God. He's asking you to do it. This is his will. This is his choice. So suck it up, reel yourself in, and do what he tells you to do. Do it like he does it. And then he goes on and gets kind of to the heart of it in verse 17. He says, honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. That word honor in the Greek is the word teme. It's a word that means to value. Isn't that amazing? What a radical concept. Value everyone. And, and then, of course, as he says, love the brethren. See, of course you're going to love people who believe the same thing that you do, right? Well, not always. He's telling us to value all people. Some of us don't value our own family. Some of us don't value those who care about us. Some of us don't value other churches that may do things differently than we do, but they're still 
professing Jesus Christ as Lord, and we don't even see any value in them because of some minor differences that we might have with them. He goes, yeah, love the brethren, of course, but value everyone. And then as he says, fear God. Be afraid of going against what God says. Be afraid of misrepresenting him. You ought to be shaken in your boots a little bit to realize that the way that you live out in that world may make a difference for people that Jesus died for, people who he loves, as to whether or not they're going to end up being there praising God on inspection day. And some of that is affected by us. And I don't understand philosophically exactly how, but that scares me a little bit, that one day I would pop off, that one day I would just respond in a fleshly way and it would drive someone away from Jesus. He goes, yeah, value everyone and love your brothers and fear God and then value the king. Make sure that you value the people who are in supreme authority, and this would include all the other um, officials as well that he was talking about. Do we treat people in this world with value? See, the way this world goes is that nobody treats anyone with value. The only people we treat with value are people we're trying to get something out of them. We're, you know, we need something from them, therefore they are valuable to us. We don't see value as being inherent in someone, we see value in its connection with our lust, with our desires, with our ugliness. But he is, Peter is introducing this radical concept that will certainly make us stand out. How about if you treat everyone like they're valuable? How about if especially people who are in leadership, you treat as though with honor and respect and value? Boy, that would stick out. How do you act when a policeman pulls you over when you've been driving too fast or you made an illegal turn or something like that or you didn't have your seatbelt on. You know, they're, what they're used to, and their police officers here would be glad to tell you this, pull someone over, you're going to get lectured from the people about I wasn't, you know, I'm in denial. I wasn't driving that fast. There were other people who were driving even faster. I had something happening that was really important. And then it degenerates well, at first, you're nice to the cop because you're thinking, if I'm nice, then maybe they'll just give me a warning. But as soon as they start writing in the book, boy, you let them have it. And that's, you know, and it ends up with, I pay your salary, some public servant you are, you don't understand, I, you know, you're a bunch of, you know, next time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vote that they cut your pay, and, you know, and, and that's what they're used to. That's what they're used to. Well, how radical would it be if a cop pulls somebody over and the people are really nice and the cop's like, yeah, I'm used to that, but I'm going to give them a ticket anyway. They begin to write you a ticket and you said, hey, I appreciate what you're doing. You probably don't hear this enough, but you're out here protecting and serving the public. And I know it's a difficult job and I'm sure most people just hate getting a ticket, but you know what? You're doing what you're supposed to do, and I appreciate it, and I want you to have a great day. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to fight this, so you have to take a day off to go be in court and pre so I can pretend like I didn't do anything. I'm just going to pay you the ticket. You'll never hear from me again, and I'm going to try to drive a little better next time so that this doesn't happen. I'm going to take this. The Bible says that you are someone who is a servant of God, and so I'm going to take this as if God just busted me, and 
I thank you for doing what you're doing. They would just go, what? They'd probably feel bad that they already wrote you a ticket, but it's too late because once it's in the book, it's kind of a done deal. But Peter is saying, imagine how this affects people when you respond in an attractive way in a situation where typically an unattractive response is what's necessary. Imagine if people who didn't vote for someone then wrote them a letter when they're elected and said, I just want you to know, I didn't vote for you, but, but you are my senator, you are my president, you are my governor, and I'm praying for you every day to be blessed by God. I mean, what kind of an effect would that have? What kind of an effect would it have on a boss who fires you if you just told them, instead of saying, you're making the biggest mistake you've ever made, my brother-in-law is an attorney, and you're going to see, I'll see you in court. If instead you just go, you know what, I understand you have difficult decisions to make, but I appreciate the opportunity to, to be someone who's had the chance to work here, and, and um, I've enjoyed and appreciated this job, and, and so I just want to thank you for, for that. Most bosses would fall out of their seats if someone responded in that way. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, when you find yourself in a situation where someone else has influence over you, you grab the influence over them and surprise them by responding in an attractive way. And he says, that's what God's will is. Don't use your spirituality as a cloak for ugliness, but you value everyone. Treat every waitress, treat every person on the road, treat every person that you see in this building, treat every person that you see throughout your week as if they have intrinsic value, because they do. And you make it your goal to make people feel appreciated and valued. And that will impact them. Because you know yourself how few times in a week anyone ever treats you like you're valuable. Again, just like a cop who pulls somebody over, you know, of course people act nice when they want something from you. But once they realize they're not going to get what they want, then you see the real reaction. You know, then you see how they really feel. But here he's just going, be people who surprise others, who really get their attention, who really, they see an attractiveness because you value them no matter what. That for them to cut in front of you in line is something that you're happy to see it happen because they're important. They matter to you. Value them. And now in knowing that that's a difficult concept, he goes into an institution that's really problematic, and that is the institution of slavery. And it's tough, but you know, the Scriptures, though there are plenty of principles in Scripture that would have said slavery is horrible, again, Peter, like Paul, deals with reality. This is the way it is. You find yourself as a slave, make the best of it, and adapt and adjust to the situation. And so here he says, servants, be submissive. Hupotasso, adjust yourself to your masters with all fear, not only to the good, the, the, the nice masters, the gentle masters, that word means, gentle means the people who find something in common with you and build the relationship on that. But not only that, but also to those who are um, harsh. The word there for harsh really means warped or twisted. It's the Greek word scolios, from which we get the word scoliosis when someone's spine is 
curved out of whack. And he says, you know what? Some bosses, some kings, some people you're going to run into don't act valuable because they don't understand they're valuable. If they're nice, of course, be good to them. But even if they're twisted, you make sure that you value them. God commands that. And he says, for this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. He says, you know, if you deserve to get in trouble and you get in trouble and you're nice about it, big deal. The real opportunity is when you don't deserve to be in trouble and you're in trouble and you're nice about it. But what is it actually? Notice the word commendable in the start of verse 19 and in the end of verse 20. I don't know why they translated it commendable. Um, I understand it kind of flows, but the word there is a Greek word that most of you are very familiar with. It's the Greek word charis, K-A-R-I-S. And that's the word that almost always in the Bible is translated grace. It's the word that gets carried over into ultimately into English through French to, to be caress to hold someone, to value them, to, to give them something not based on conditional love, but to really just hold them in, in value and esteem, to show grace to them. Now read it that way. He says, for the, and he's going, servants, adjust to your masters even when they are twisted. For this is grace. And then down at the bottom, if you take it patiently, this is grace before God. I like that. If you have a problem with treating people in this way, you're having a problem with grace. But if you want to influence others, it's only going to be through grace. Peter later talks about the fact that it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. The only way people are ever changed is through grace. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians never get to understand grace themselves. They can talk about it. They say they believe in it, but they live their life by a bunch of rules and they, and they measure themselves compared to others and are always worried about what other people think about them. Grace is something that sets us free from all that. And here's what it looks like. And this is how it works. And that's what Peter is saying. The life that I'm suggesting that you live the life that will truly make a difference to others and influence them and draw them to Christ is going to be a life of grace. I know they don't deserve it. And every time somebody doesn't deserve it and you do it for them, they get a chance to hopefully discover grace. And you never learn to show grace until you realize what it is to receive grace. So he says, this is grace. For, verse 21, to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Our ultimate example is Jesus himself. And he said, Jesus showed grace to you. Jesus allowed himself. Jesus submitted himself. He, he died for us. I mean, he's not asking you to do something he wouldn't do for himself. He suffered for us. And then he says, leaving us an example. The word there for example is hupogramos, Grandma's just means written. 
And hupo means under. It literally means underwrite. He's the underwriter for us. Now, we're not that familiar with that term, but what an underwriter was is when you want... They didn't have photocopy machines, believe it or not, in those days. And so you would take a, a, a writing or a picture, a graphic, you'd put it down and you would take what we used to call tracing paper and lay it over the top of it so that you could see it. And that's the hupogrammos, that's the underwriting, and you would trace around it and therefore make a duplicate. And what he's saying is Jesus Christ left us his own character, his own example as our underwriter. Do what he did. Live like him. The way he valued people that no one else valued, you value them. The way that he showed grace to others when they may not have deserved it, the way he gave his life for people who, as, as Paul said over Romans, that here's how we know love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In that state, he saw value, he chose to give of himself, and he goes, all I'm asking you to do is to do what he did. Because if people are ever going to see Jesus, they're going to have to see people that kind of look like him, that live like him, that make decisions that mean I better reel in my passion, I better reel in my flesh, because what's hanging on how I live my life is the potential of other people either accepting or rejecting Jesus Christ. And that's a big deal. And then Peter quotes through the rest of this section, either specifically quoting or alluding to my favorite chapter of the Bible, by far, Isaiah 53. And he says, Jesus committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He could have, but he committed himself. That word means he surrendered to him who judges righteously. And then he describes that what we call the substitutionary atonement. This is a heavy theological passage that I could spend weeks on verse 24. But who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, took our sins on him, in order that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness or equity, fairness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd or the pastor and the overseer, the bishop, the episcopos, the one who inspects in the end of your souls. He's looking out for your soul. He goes, think about Jesus. How did he respond? It was prophesied in Isaiah 53 in just an amazing and a graphic way of what he would do when he was attacked for us. And as Isaiah says there in the 53rd chapter, who would believe it? I mean, he grew up like a tender plant, and he didn't have a former comeliness. When we saw him, there was nothing that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we didn't esteem him. But, as Peter quotes here, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of our peace was upon him. And, as Peter says, by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. And then, as Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. 
The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our sins, and he took the sins of us all. And all of that is ultimately the basis in which Peter is saying, here's how you can value people. Here's how you should treat people. Here's how you can act in a way that will draw people to Jesus Christ. He did it for you. He gave the example and how the world was changed because he was willing to take it. Because he was willing to take it without arguing back, without fighting. Jesus said, nobody takes my life. I give it up voluntarily. Why? Because he loved us so much. And the people that you see every day, and your president, and your governor, and your senators, and your neighbors, and your friends, and your enemies, people who hate you and think you're ugly, they were all in the category, in the same boat with all of us. He loves them. And he wants to draw them by your attractiveness and mine to him by his grace. And if we can't throw them off, if we can't get them to take a second look, because all we're doing is acting the way they expect us to act, then there's no power. There's no real message. There, there is no good news. But he took it, and, and he says that we having died to sins, there in verse 24, it's not necron, the normal word for dying to sin. Um, Paul over in, in um, Romans 6 says that reckon yourselves dead to sin. But this word is the word genomai, um, and it's a word that means, and then it has the prefix apa, away from genomai. The word genomai means to, to bring into origin. It's, you know, the word genesis comes from the same root word. Or the word generate. When you generate something, it's moving in a process. So he's saying away from the process of sin. In other words, he said there was a time when you were motoring your way towards sin, that the trend of your life was heading in that direction. But he says, because of what he has done, we are heading away from sin. It's not that we don't sin. It's not that we don't struggle with things every day. But it's that the direction of our life changed, and now we are degenerating from sin and toward heaven and toward righteousness. And he says, you're just like sheep. But you have, a, you have a shepherd, and you have an overseer. You have someone who's looking out for you, someone to whom you will ultimately answer, and you have the great privilege of representing that pastor, that overseer, that bishop, that episkopos, because people look at you, and when, what they see in you will cause them to draw conclusions about the God that you say you serve. You want to know what's wrong with the world? That's it right there. We just don't do that like we should. We don't value people like we should. That's why the prophet said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I will heal their land. It's not if those people will, it's if we will. If we start doing what we should do, and if we present a warped grace, if we present a legalistic, judgmental message, if we send a vibe out to people that they aren't valuable instead of that they are, all the difference in the world, 
in terms of effectiveness. I'm thankful that he has made me valuable and special before him. But I don't want that to be for nothing. I want to impact others. I want to affect others by the way I live my life. Notice there's nothing in here that says anything about what we say to others. It's all about how we live our life and how we value other people. And that's where it has to start because they can't hear our words. You don't share the gospel until you get the words out there, but the example is what draws people. It's what gets their attention, and it's what we are called to as followers of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for so faithfully living out the beautiful life, the callous life, that even in seeing your suffering, Lord Jesus, there's this crazy beauty in that, that you willingly took it because you loved us so much. And we haven't learned that very well, but we want to. We want to choose to live graciously. So please do the work by your Spirit in our lives, whereby we can send a message that looks attractive to people who don't know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.